Now, friends, we saw that the 20th chapter of Numbers actually brought us to the end of the wilderness march. It was the end of the wilderness march in the sense the wandering is over, and they will now begin to march. The last we saw was the death of Aaron. In fact, chapter 20 opened with the death of Miriam, the sister of Moses, and closed with the death of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And now, as we come to chapter 21, the children of Israel resume their march, and they are now marching. They're on the way. The march is resumed, and for the first time there is victory. Let me begin reading at verse 1 now of Numbers 21. And when King Arid the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Now, this is the first victory in the wilderness march. And God gave them this victory. But they are now having to go by Mount Hor and the way of the Red Sea. They can't go through the land of Edom. And they are attempting to make a circuitous route around, of course, that land. And as they do, it becomes very discouraging to the people in their plight of discouragement why they begin to complain and whine and murmur. And that's characteristic of so many of us today. Don't we do just that? We complain and murmur. Notice in verse 5, "...and the people spake against God and against Moses, wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness?" For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now, this is the eighth and the last murmuring of the children of Israel. And they're murmuring again about the manna. You will recall the mixed multitude were the ones that kept them before from accepting the manna. It was a wonderful food, by the way. It really contained all the vitamins. We've called attention to that. We'll see it in the book of Deuteronomy. God said to them, Your foot did not swell. Well, that's very, very. And a doctor in the Philippines, a missionary doctor, told me, he says, the foot will swell when people are on the same kind of a diet. And that meant they got all their vitamins in the manna. And it was a very tasty sort of food, but they complained about it. You know, I think there's some people that would complain 
about steak and ice cream all the time. They'd probably want a hamburger occasionally. It's amazing today how easy it is for us to complain, and especially about anything that pertains to the things of God. I've been amazed at the way people will complain about the seats in church. I was a pastor for many years. Many people complained about the seats in the church. Well, I guess when they sit and listen to me that they notice those things maybe a little bit more. But people would complain about that. And you know, I've seen folk go to a football game and sit on hard seats in a stadium, and there's no back on those seats. And they just sit there for several hours and never complain. Isn't it interesting how we whine and complain to God about things? And how many times do we thank Him and rejoice in His goodness to us? Well, these people are complaining. And I think, frankly, by this time the Lord is getting just a little tired of all their murmuring. And they're saying here that their soul just hates that manna. They don't like it. And they say... Why did you bring us here in the wilderness to die? My, how they're complaining. The Lord's tired of it now, and he's going to judge them for that. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. It's brought home to them now that they are sinners. And that's the way you have to begin with God. The letter today, it's such a remarkable letter. And the party is beginning with God as a sinner. They're out taking this alcoholic anonymous bit, and they're an alcoholic. And God's brought them a long ways because they've turned now to him. They're not sure whether they're born again. In fact, they don't think that they are but they at least have begun with God as a sinner. And that's the problem with so many folk today. They want to begin with God as a church member or as a nice little girl or boy. But, friends, the only way that God will begin with us is as sinners. You see, Christ died for sinners, and he loved sinners and if you can't come in under that category, then Christ is not for you. He came for sinners. And if you can begin here, as these people now are ready to do, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now they're going to have to evidence faith, because they haven't any good work. They can promise God we're going to be good little boys and girls, and that's not going to do a bit of good because they won't be that. But they can believe God, and God's going to let them come to him by faith. Notice what he did. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that's bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a servant of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And this is a marvelous lesson, you see. 
They're to look at the brazen serpent, and they're to look in faith. In fact, they wouldn't look if it was not faith. I can well imagine that many a man, and when I say many, I don't know how many there were, that would say, well, that seems like nonsense to me. I want something else. I want something more tangible than just turning around looking at a serpent of brass. And he didn't do it, and he would die, of course. And this is a great lesson. And you don't have to guess at what this means, because when our Lord was talking to Nicodemus that dark night, you remember what he said to him? He says, "...as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up." Now, how was the Son of Man lifted up? Well, you say, on a cross, yes, but he was lifted up what? He was dying for Barabbas, and Barabbas was a thief. He was a murderer. He was guilty and worthy of death. But Jesus wasn't. But our Lord was made sin for us. And on that cross, he's not only taking Barabbas' place, he's taking your place, and he's taking my place. And so he could say, as Moses lifted up the serpent, In the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever now believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And God permitted this and did this because he loved you, but he just can't save you by his love. You see, it doesn't say God so loved the world that he saved the world. Not that at all. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Now, my friend, the only thing God asks you to do is to look. Look and live. Look and live. Look to Christ. He is taking your place there. You're a sinner. You deserve to die. He does not deserve to die. Now, we read here that this is the thing that was done. And those that look, they live. Those that did not, they died. And it's just that simple today. Either you're looking to Christ as your Savior, because you're a sinner, or you're not doing it, friends. And if you're not doing it, I don't care how many times you've been baptized. I don't care how many ceremonies you've been through. And I don't care how many churches you've joined. And I don't care who your father and mother happen to be. You are a lost, hell-doomed sinner until you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's just as simple as that. And by the way, it's just as complicated as that. Oh, the problem that people have today, the sinner, to look to Christ and to trust him when he wants to look to himself and his own good works there and think that somehow or another his own good works might save him. Now, we notice something else in this chapter that's quite interesting. The children of Israel, after this incident, they moved on. We're told that Verse 13, from thence they removed, pitched on the other side of Arnon, that's a river, which is in the wilderness that cometh out of the coasts of the Amorites. And you could get your map and follow right through here their journeys. And we're told here, verse 16, and from thence they went to Beer, that is, the well whereof the Lord spake unto Moses, gather the people together and I'll give them water. Now listen to this, how different this is. Then Israel sang this song. Friends, this is the first time that they've sung a song of praise and thanksgiving. 
They've been singing the desert blues, murmuring. Sounds like modern music up to this point. And now it's a hallelujah chorus. Verse 17, Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. In other words, they're thanking God for the provision that he's made for them in supplying water. And we're told the princess digged the well, and the nobles of the people digged it. And here you have capital and labor joining together in this. And now, if you follow along in this chapter, and we'll not do it in any detail at all, you'll find that the Lord gave them a victory here over Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And this man, Sihon, didn't want them to pass through his borders, but they're going to pass through his borders, by the way. And then we find that after that, why, the king of Moab, he didn't want to let them come through either. And we find that God gave them a victory over Moab. And so the children of Israel now are marching and they are singing praises to God, and God is giving them victory. They're ready now to enter into the promised land. We will have to go through another book before we're going to see them do that, because the book of Deuteronomy has some very important lessons to teach. Not only did it teach them in that day, but it teaches us in our day also. Now we come to a section... It's chapter 22 and also 23 and also 24. And we find it goes on into chapter 25. It's the story of Balaam, the prophet. There comes across the page of Scripture now one of those strange individuals that I wish that I could interpret for you, but I regret I cannot. I wish I knew more that I could tell you about this man. But he's one of those strange characters that comes across the page of Scripture. And there are many of them. These men march across the page, and they're from all walks of life. And the Holy Spirit, though, of the literally thousands that are recorded in the Word of God, customarily gives us a cameo sharp picture of them just a clear delineation of character in a few words. We've seen that. But there are some exceptions. And these few walk in the shadows, fuzzy and hazy. And darkness really hides their true natures. They're distorted. They're twisted individuals. And it's not always sure that, at least I'm not, that I make a correct estimation of them or evaluation Let me mention some of them in the Old Testament. We have, for instance, Cain in the Old Testament. Not sure about Cain. Esau. Not sure about Esau. Balaam, the man we're going to look at now. Samson. What about Samson? And Saul. And Absalom is another one. And we'll see these men when we get to them. Now we have in the New Testament, there was that rich young ruler that came to Christ. Did he ever come back to Christ? Many of us have hoped that he did, as some try to even think that he was Saul of Tarsus. I don't know. There's Judas. Well, I'm sure that most of us feel he's a lost individual, but he's a strange 
individual who followed our Lord for three years. No one detected that he was a phony except the Lord Jesus himself. And then there's Demas. Demas, who seemed to be so faithful, and yet he finally forsook the apostle Paul. And what about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, now, Balaam is one of these enigmatic and mysterious characters. One writer said that he's one of the strangest characters of all Scripture. Now, is he a genuine prophet of God? I've read books where it says that he is. Or is he a religious racketeer? And I've read an equal number that say that he's that. Is Balaam sincerely seeking to serve God, or is he a fake, a phony, or is he as phony as a $3 bill? Well, I'll have to let you be the judge of it. We can dismiss him as unworthy of any consideration at all, but I'm very sorry to have to tell you that the Word of God attaches just a little importance to him, by the way. Micah says of him, "'O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Chittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord.'" Micah says, "'You better not forget him.'" So maybe we better not push this character aside. We better see something about him. Did you know that there's more said in Scripture about Balaam than there's about Mary, the mother of Jesus? And there's more said about Balaam than ten of the apostles. The New Testament mentions him three times, and each time it's in connection with apostasy. There are three great apocalyptic messages. In Second Peter, we have a reference to it. And we're told there about the way of Balaam. And we're told in Jude about the era of Balaam. And in Revelation, we're told about the doctrine of Balaam. And I want you to notice these three statements concerning this man as we look at what the Word of God says about him. What about Balaam? Well, he was a Midianite. He was brought from Aram, the mountains of the east. He was a prophet with a wide reputation. He got results. Was he genuine? Well, I'm not going to answer that right now. I'll probably have to wait until next time before we'll find out too much really about him. But what about him? What about Balaam? Well, let me introduce him to us here today, and I think we do need to get acquainted with him. First of all, we're told the background. Chapter 22, now verse 1. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. You see now they're ready to enter the land. And the question now is with Balak. He witnessed what had happened to the Amorites and his people. He was king of Moab, and he was wondering what he should do in connection with Israel. Should he attack them? Or just what should he do? Well, very candidly, he didn't know what to do. And so he sent to engage the services of this prophet. And notice verse 5, we read, He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river, the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there's a people come up out of Egypt, Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. 
Now, he's in a sad state, if you want to know the truth. He actually would like to know just exactly what he should do. And so he sends and brings Balaam. And very frankly, and I'll just run ahead and say this, our first meeting with this man Balaam, he looks to me like he's the real article. But I'm afraid as we move along, we may get different opinion about it. One of those strange individuals who walks across the pages of Scripture, but he walks in the shadows, and it's rather hazy to really know this man, and it's difficult to make a true evaluation of him. And we are going to let you do that as we call attention to some salient points in the man's record as God has given it to us here. He was a prophet, well-known apparently in that entire land, and he was hired by this man Balak to come and curse the children of Israel because actually he was a superstitious man, and these people had poured in there to the Jordan River. They were in his land, to tell the truth, for that was Moab, and he wasn't sure he wanted them there. And the fact of the matter is, he wanted them out of that land. And so I read in verse 6, "'Come now, therefore, I pray, curse me this people.'" Now, he sent, you remember, messengers down, and they've come now to Balaam with this overture. "'For they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land.'" For I know that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Now, this man Balaam had quite a reputation, you see. And in verse 7, And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balaam. Now, they're bringing their rewards or the pay of a diviner, that is, one who's a fortune teller, actually one that is satanic in his operation. And they brought a very handsome price to offer to this man, by the way. Now notice Balaam's answer. He said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princess of Moab abode with Balaam. Now, he seems honestly trying to ascertain here the mind of God, and he apparently is in touch with God. And notice, and God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And the very interesting thing is that God did communicate with him. Now, in verse 12, here's God's answer. God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, that is categorical, a matter-of-fact answer. No way to be evasive about that. Now, notice, Balaam rose up in the morning, said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Now, he seems to be a sincere and honest man of God. And if this were the end of the story, then I'd have to assume that. But notice, this man Balak, he's persistent. And Balak sent yet again princes, more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, 
Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor. I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people. And actually, they brought, you see, a better price. They are offering him more. And notice this man, his answer now. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Well, they have upped the price, but that doesn't seem to affect this man Balaam. He turns it down. You see, he sounds very pious here. The fact of the matter is, you feel like saying amen, and then you have a second thought. He's too good to be true. And why did he say what he did? Why did he speak of a house filled with silver and gold? Well, because he was covetous. That's the reason. He had his mind set in that direction. Now, notice verse 19, his answer that he gives to these men. He says, Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me. Oh, oh, what's happening here, friends? Well, it's quite obvious. He already has God's answer. He didn't need to wait that night and get a further answer. God's already told him not to go. But this man's hoping that the Lord will open a crack in the door so he can put his foot in. If he gets his foot in, he's going to go. He has God's answer. He doesn't need any more. It's very interesting. Sometimes those of us that are preachers, we make a great deal of getting a call from God to go to a certain church. Now, I've heard that used many times, and generally it's a bigger church with a larger salary and more attractive offer, and probably the people are more attractive. And it's pretty hard to turn that down. I heard the story of the preacher who came to his wife one day and said, I've just had a call to the church over in the next town. Now, you know it's a bigger town, richer town. It's a bigger church, more members, and they're much finer folk over there than they are here. And I've been called to go over there as pastor. Now, says, I'm going upstairs and pray about it and find out what the Lord's will is. And she said, well... I'll go upstairs and pray with you. And he said, oh, my, no. He says, you stay down here and pack. May I say to you, he'd made up his mind, as you can see. And old Balaam's made up his mind also. Now, notice, here is something God often does, not only for Balaam, but he does it for many of his servants, and he'll do it for you and me. And it's not good, friends, when he permits it. Notice what God says. God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. In other words, God says, All right, you want to go. And before it's through, you'll go, because they'll up the price again, of course. But the thing is, if you go, you are to say what I want you to say. Be careful of that. You have here what's known as the permissive will of God. He permits us many times to do something when we insist, and it's not His will. It's not His direct will. You remember what was said of the children of Israel? He granted their request, 
but sent leanness to their souls. And sometimes he grants our request, sends leanness to our souls. Now, God, you see, warned him here that he's to be careful now as he goes. And Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his ass, and went with the princess of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. You see, he had God's answer, but God permits him now to go. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and a sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. In other words, even this prophet doesn't have the mind of God at all and has no spiritual discernment, whereas, frankly, this animal did. Now we're told, but the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on his side and a wall on that. When the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself unto the wall, crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. angel of the Lord went farther and stood in the narrow way. And this man Balaam wants to go, you see. He's a covetous man. Now we find that the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? Well, this is a miracle, of course. And God is using this to get a message through. Some wag has said that it was a miracle in Balaam's day when an ass spoke, and that it's a miracle today when one keeps quiet. And I'm not sure but what that is true. Now, you have here, this is the way of Balaam, the thing that Peter mentioned, you'll recall. And they've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. And this is Second Peter 2, 15 and 16. And this is the way that a great many Christian organizations are measured today by the dollar sign. I'm sure glad that we are not using that, because if we did, we wouldn't mount to very much, that's for sure. But covetousness is the way of this man. But we need to probe here just a little bit deeper into this man's personality. Because notice what Jude says, "'Woe unto them, they've gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward.'" You see, he's a covetous man. But notice now, this man is going to use that very subtle thing that's known as rationalization. And he'll do that to explain his motives. You see, he wants to ascribe a worthy motive for his conduct. And I find today in the church a great many Christians that are doing something that's quite questionable, and they come up with some kind of uh, rationalization. And I want you to notice now this scene here. He goes on his way. And he comes to the place of the nation Israel, and he meets this man Balak. Now, notice this man, the king of Moab, Balak, he takes him to the top of a mountain where he can see the camp of Israel below. And fact of the matter is, since he's not satisfied with any of his prophecies, 
He'll take him to all four sides of the camp, to four different mountains. Now, notice the first. Here's his first prophecy in verse 7. He took up his parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. Now, listen to this. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed, or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Now, that's a remarkable prophecy, by the way. In fact, it's one of the remarkable prophecies, and it's the first one concerning these people. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Now, this man wasn't satisfied, you see, with this prophecy at all. So he took him from that mountain, took him over to another one, and gave him another look at the children of Israel as they were camped in the valley. And I read now beginning verse 18 of chapter 23. And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. And God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Now, you see, this man Balak brings him to another place. Instead of cursing Israel, he actually blesses them again and makes it clear that God cannot. Now, you see, what Balaam is doing, he's reasoning and rationalizing that God must condemn Israel. There was evil in the camp. Sin was in evidence. Just read their stories. We've been reading it. Believe me, they failed. That was the instance of the brazen serpent. These people confess they've sinned. And you see, therefore, this man came to the conclusion, well, God's got to judge Israel because of their sin. And the natural man always concludes that God must judge Israel because of their sin and that God must judge the sinner. And today, I've heard this question many times, how could God call David a man after his own heart? Well, there's a higher righteousness than human righteousness, and it just happens to be the righteousness of Christ. What shall we then say to these things? Paul asked that question in Romans 8:31. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified, and God should judge a sinner. But he's already judged him in Christ 
when he comes by faith to Christ. And the world doesn't understand that. And old Balaam didn't understand that. He said, well, if God's going to judge Israel, why shouldn't I get the benefit of the rewards of this king? Balaam thought God must condemn Israel. And therefore, he'd be permitted to get a good reward as a result of it. Well, let's probe a little deeper into the life of this man. And you find out that we're told in Revelation 2, "...but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel eat things sacrificed unto idols." I want to look now at this next prophecy, and it's in the 24th chapter. And we find here that he's taken this man up here to another place. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 24, And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Balak lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now, see, that's an amazing thing about this man. The Spirit of God came upon this man. And listen to his prophecy. He took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, He hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. Now, there was sin in the camp, and God dealt with that sin. That was the brazen serpent. God dealt with those people. He judged them. But he's not going to let anyone on the outside bring a charge against them. All this man can do is to bless them and to praise them. And Satan can't bring a charge against God's elect. Who shall? That's Paul's question. If God be for us, who can be against us? What are we going to say to these things? Well, friends, I have many things to say. I just say hallelujah, that's all. Because it's God that justifies. And who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, nobody can if God's already declared them righteous, and that's what he's done. This is a marvelous prophecy, by the way. Now, the fourth prophecy is over here in the 24th chapter, verse 17. And this is prophecy that's good for Christmas time. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Now you'll find out that about 1,500 years after this, that out of that land of the east from which Balaam came, and you must recall that this prophecy was retained in that land, as this man was considered an outstanding prophet among these wise men of the east. And we find that there comes into Jerusalem a whole company of wise men, and they ask the question, where is he that's born king of the Jews? Now, where in the world did they know anything about the king of the Jews? And they say, we've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And how did they associate a star with a king, and a king coming out of Israel? 
Well, it's quite obvious that here could be the basis for it, because we're told here, "...there shall come a star out of Jacob." And that would be the star that the wise men saw when they were in the east. The stars out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, that scepter, of course, is a king that would rise out of Israel. So they would naturally come and say, "...where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him." And that doesn't conclude this prophecy. In verse 19, I read, "...out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city." Now, this is a remarkable prophecy, as you can see. And also, if you put with it the prophecies of Daniel, you'll find out that there was to come one out of Israel, and that he was to be the Messiah. And Daniel gives the approximate time that he was to come. So that when you put all of these together, Daniel likewise prophesied in the east that it would be more or less of a very natural experience for these wise men who were studying the stars. They gave a great deal of time to the study of them, that they come out of the east, and they come with this question concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus. And, of course, the thing that makes it doubly remarkable is that the very people who had the Old Testament with all of these prophecies were told to look for the coming of the Messiah. They were not looking for him. Actually, as a nation, they were not. Oh, there were Anna in the temple and Simeon. They were looking for him to come, but it was the minority. That silent majority were silent in that day also. They had nothing to say, and they were not looking for him to come. But here are these wise men, and as we indicated before, there weren't three wise men that came. Three wise men would not have caused a commotion in Jerusalem at that time, but 300 would have. And we have every reason to suppose that there would be nearer 300 than three. 300 wise men coming into town would certainly be exciting. There wouldn't be enough Holiday Inns and Howard Johnson motels to put them all up. It would be rather exciting. And it would have stirred Jerusalem, which it was stirred at that particular time. You see, these wise men came from all over the east and converged upon Jerusalem. But when they got there, they didn't know what direction to go. But they did know to come to the capital city, because the star was to rise out of Jacob. I consider this quite remarkable, and I consider this very thrilling Christmas story. However, the Lord Jesus apparently was not born on December the 25th to begin with. And the second thing is the wise men didn't come at the time of his birth. When we studied Matthew, I called attention to the fact that when the wise men got there, he was in the house. When the shepherds came down, he was in the stable. So he had been moved and was in a house at the time. The pressure of the taxing that had been made was over, and there was accommodations for them to live in a house. And that took place afterward. And the very fact that old Herod wanted to put to death the children two years old and under indicates that it was some time 
after the birth of Christ that the wise men got there, so that we don't necessarily need to associate them with the Christmas story, yet we've always done that because they have come at the birth of the Lord Jesus. They saw a star when it appeared in the east, you see. And it wasn't an eastern star either, by the way. It was a western star. They were in the east, and they were looking west, and they came west. You see, it was that star beckoning them to come west, and not Horace Greeley of the New York Sun, who years ago said, Go west, young man, go west. This star is the first one that motioned them into the west. And so they came to Jerusalem, naturally to the capital, looking for him, and then they went down to Bethlehem because the scribes were able to give them the prophecy of where he was to be born, and they found him down there. And he wasn't just a little baby at that particular time. When I say a baby, I should say an infant, I guess. He probably was a year old. He could have been several months old at that particular time. Because, you see, they saw the star at the birth. They came by camel. Friends, they weren't traveling by jet. Pan Am was not running flights through that area at that particular time. So they came by camel. And they got there months after the Lord Jesus was born, you see. So this fits into that story, and I've spent time with it for that reason. Now you will find that a very interesting thing is said about Balaam. He certainly didn't satisfy this man at all. That is, Balak, the king of the Moabites. And we read verse 25, "...and Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place." And Balak also went his way. And it's a very strange statement that's made of Balaam. It says, he returned or went to his place. And there's only one other man in Scripture that says that of, and that's Judas. Judas went to his place, we're told. And Scripture's pretty silent about that. Now we have here the end of this man Balaam, by the way. Later on, in a battle, he was killed. We are told over in the 31st chapter of Numbers at verse 8, Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. That is when they were fighting Midian and the five kings of Midian over farther to the east. And this man Balaam was slain and like Judas went to his place. Now we come to the 25th chapter of the book of Numbers. And you see probably the most subtle and satanic and hellish thing about what this man Balaam really did. Now, we have discovered here we had, first of all, the way of Balaam. That was the way of covetousness. He was after the almighty dollar, and he'd be willing to sacrifice his principles for that. And then in the book of Jude, we're told about the era of Balaam. And the era of Balaam was that he was not aware of the fact that God could declare righteous sinners who trust him. And that is something that there are multitudes today sitting in pews and standing in pulpits are not aware of, that God justifies sinners today, declares them righteous by simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the most damnable thing that this man did is told in Revelation 2.14, 
where it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and commit fornication. Now, when he saw he could not curse them, he taught Balak. He taught him how that he might curse these people. And you know how it was? It was to get into the camp. In other words, it's sort of like they talk about City Hall, when you can't fight City Hall and you join it. Well, he couldn't fight these people, so now he's going to join them and corrupt them from within. So let me read this section here. It's rather important in that connection. And Israel abode in Chittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Now, Balak was the king of Moab. Now, you see what he did. He said, I can't curse them, but I can tell you what you can do. You can go down there now and attempt to communicate with them and to integrate with them and to intermarry with them and introduce idolatry to these people and turn them away from their God. And they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. They said to Israel at first, don't be a bunch of squares. Don't be so narrow-minded. We want to be broad-minded. You come over and worship with us. The interesting thing, they never went and worshiped with the children of Israel. I've always been interested in the liberal in the church today. He always talks about wanting me as a fundamentalist to come over on his side and agree with him. But you know, I've never been able to get him to come over on my side and agree with me. And yet he's supposed to be the broad-minded fellow, and I'm the narrow-minded fellow. The very interesting thing is, friends, that the tendency of the human heart is always downward and away from God. And that's the reason today that rackets prosper, religious rackets prosper. And that's the reason that we have radio religious rackets, we have church religious rackets, we have organizations, we have actually schools today that are nothing in the world but religious rackets, friends. And somebody says, yes, but look how people support them. Well, yes, the natural man, these things appeal to them. And that's the reason some people think I'm pretty foolish just to teach the Bible. A man said to me, he said, why don't you broaden out and introduce certain other programs? I had a letter recently. Now you could put in a program to return to the home. And my, what a program he had outlined for me. You see, there's always that tendency to introduce something else other than the Word of God. Because these things, I'll be very frank with you, they'll prosper. I find that we operate on a shoestring. And we're satisfied with our accommodations. They're not luxurious, but they certainly are adequate for us. We're not complaining. But we see these folk in luxurious accommodations living high on the hog, if you please. And we struggle along. And somebody said, well, it looks like the Lord let you down. No, this is the way it goes today, friends. I'm very sorry to have to tell you this is the way it is. And therefore, old Balaam knew he could corrupt the people by getting a religious racket going. If he could get the children of Israel to turn to the worship of Balaam. And that's exactly what happened.
Notice what happens, verse 3. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people, hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that are joined unto Baal Peor. You say, that's extreme remedy. It certainly is. And you know why? Because the disease is fatal. It'll turn a man away from God and send him to hell. And therefore, what God was doing was an act of mercy to save the nation Israel. And we find there in verse 9, "...and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand." You see, that's the way that Balaam was able to curse Israel. And this is the doctrine of Balaam. And it got into the church. That's what the Lord says in Revelation 2.14. It got into the church, and it's in the church today. Now, my viewpoint is that you can't hurt God's people or God's work or God's church today from the outside. The church has never been hurt from the outside. The world and Pergamos came in like a flood, and the devil joined the church. And this is a great principle, I think, that's applicable to all relationships. You know, our country today, my, after World War II, we stuck up missiles everywhere and had a dew line across the Arctic, everything to keep the enemy from the outside. And what happened? We began to fall from the inside, and there was a moral decay, the like of which we've never seen. And today we find revolutionaries on the inside of our nation today. We'll be destroyed from within. Rome didn't fall from the outside. No enemy from the outside destroyed Rome, but Rome fell from within. And the church cannot be hurt from the outside, but it certainly can be hurt from within. And I find out that the same is true of any work today. It's always hurt from the inside and never from the outside. Have you ever noticed that the Lord Jesus was betrayed from the inside? It wasn't a Roman soldier that betrayed him. It was one of the apostles who betrayed him. And then his own nation turned him over to Rome to be crucified. Always Jesus is betrayed from the inside. And friends, that's true today. That's the doctrine of Balaam, and it's a damnable doctrine, of course. Now that brings us to chapter 26 here. And we've come now to the new generation from here through the rest of the book of Numbers. And we're going to move rapidly through this section. We have the new generation. Now, in chapter 26, we have the census of the new generation. And we find here that there is a decimation of the numbers of the children of Israel. And I'm not going to take the time to go down through each one of the tribes, but if you would go down through chapter 26, you will notice that they are down from what they were at first. Now, you take Reuben. In verse 7 of chapter 26, it says, "...these are the families of the Reubenites, and they that were numbered of them were forty and three thousand and seven hundred and thirty." Well, back in the first chapter of Numbers, when they first started out, 
in the wilderness 40 years before this. In verse 21 of chapter 1, they were 46,500. Now they're 43,730. And that's true all the way through. And you'll find out in verse 51, when it's all totaled up, it says, "...these were the numbered of the children of Israel, 600,000 and 1,730." And it's 1,820 less than the total census that was made 40 years before this. You see, what did God say to them? Be fruitful and multiply. And when God was blessing them, that happened. But the wilderness march reveals they were out of the will of God. Instead of increasing in numbers, they decreased in numbers. And the old generation, as God told them at Kadesh Barnea, your bones will bleach here on this desert. You are not going to enter the land. And in verse 64, I read this, "...but among these..." There was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priests numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. In other words, this is a new generation, that old generation that had come out of the land of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. Every one, 21 years and older, died. Now, God did not hold those responsible that were under 21, and that may gives some indication as just what is the age of responsibility. When do you reach it? I do not know what it is, and I do not mean to suggest it's 21, but I think it's lots older than many of us suspect that it is today. So we have a new generation with the exception of two. It says in verse 65, "...for the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness, and there was not left a man of them." Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And say, these are two interesting men. And we're going to get better acquainted with them when we get over to the book of Joshua. Now, the new generation will have new problems. We hear so much today about a generation gap. I think it's been enlarged out of all proportion to what the facts are. It's always been a problem for one generation to quite understand another generation because each generation faces its own particular problems. I was rather surprised the other day in talking to my daughter. I mentioned something about the Depression. And she said to me, Dad, you mentioned the Depression quite a bit. What was it? Well, believe me, what was it? It was something that many of us went through And believe me, we knew what it was. But it's difficult for her to understand the value of a dollar. It's difficult for her today to know what it is to economize because she's been in an affluent society. Each generation has its own particular and peculiar problems. And that is all you can say about a generation gap, by the way. It's quite interesting that Someone has divided it like that. It says, when you're young, you criticize the old generation, and when you're old, you criticize the young generation. That seems to be what we call human nature. Now we come to the 27th chapter of the book of Numbers here, and we have the woman's position under law. And this, my friends, is a remarkable chapter, by the way, because of the fact 
that we are presented here with a new problem. And Moses actually didn't know what to do. He had to appeal to the Lord because according to the laws of other nations, women just didn't count. In fact, they were treated as chattels. Now, here is the problem. I begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these are the names of the daughters, Melah, Noah, and Hoglah, and Milcah, and Terzah. Now, if you have a lot of daughters in your family, friends, and you run out of names, and you don't like the ordinary names today, here's a list I'd like to suggest to you. Maybe you could find one here. Melah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Terzah. I never heard of a woman named any of these, and I think I know why. And I think you can tell why. My, they don't sound very good to me. But these were the daughters of Zelophehad. Now, what happened was this, and listen to the problem. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the princes and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family? Because he hath no son. Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. And Moses brought their cause before the Lord. Now, here is the problem, as you can see. This man, Zelophehad, he died in the wilderness, and all of his sons were daughters, and he had quite a few of them. He had five daughters and no sons. Now, according to the law of that day, and according to the Mosaic law, it looked as if a son was the one who inherited the property. It looked like the women were just left out. And certainly, the laws of the other nations left them out. They did not count at all. Now, what are they to do? Here are some women that are very aggressive. These daughters of Zelophehad are very aggressive. We are hearing a great deal today about women's rights. Well, they certainly got their rights in the Bible. There are those that years ago said the Bible was a man's book. The more I read the Bible, I'm wondering if it isn't just a woman's book, because it's the Word of God that's given women their rights. And I believe that they should have their rights, by the way. And listen now, Moses didn't really know what to do. Moses brought their cause before the Lord. Moses just had to say to them, Well, girls, I don't know what to say to you. I can see that you got a just cause. But according to the laws and the customs of the day, certainly you would not get anything. And so what happens now? The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, verse 7, The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. The Lord is on the side of women's rights, you see. 
Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. Now, friends, this is one of the most remarkable laws that is imaginable. Now, in this day when women's rights are really something that is becoming very prominent, and I saw in the papers some time ago where in a certain restaurant the waitresses make more than the boys that take up the dishes and set the tables and that sort of thing. And the waitress is making more than the man. And on the basis of women's rights, that men and women are the same, these boys are demanding the same that the waitresses are made. And believe me, that's women's rights with a vengeance, by the way. Well, we live in a day when this is commonplace. But you and I can't put ourselves back in that day when women were treated just like chattels, just like animals, actually. They were traded. Some of the missionaries that work among the tribes on the Orinoco River were telling me down in Venezuela some time ago. They said that a woman today, in fact, it's a little girl in a family, is already sold to some man before she's ten years old, traded just like you would trade an animal. And this is something that exists among primitive people to the day. Now, any woman today ought to be thankful for the Word of God because it is the Bible that first gave women's rights. And I think this is a marvelous thing. The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. They are accurate. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance. Now, on the basis of that, God puts down a principle and a law for them to operate. And this is it. Verse 8, Thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then ye shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. This is a marvelous step forward. And this happens to be about 1,500 years before Christ came into the world. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Now, it has in it a tremendous lesson here. I marvel at the aggressiveness and the forwardness of these women. I marvel at the faith of these women. And I want to say they had a marvelous faith. God says without faith it's impossible to please God. These were women of faith in the Scripture. There was no law that said they were to inherit. And they went in to Moses and they said, Look, our father died. He didn't have any sons. But we're five girls, and we want our father's inheritance. And according to the law and the custom of the day, it wouldn't be ours. But we're asking for it. We want this. And by faith they asked for it, and by faith God gave it to them. Now, that has a marvelous lesson for us today. We're told that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, I think God hears and answers not only on the spiritual side, but on the material side today. And I'm of the opinion that most of us, we just are more or less beggars today because of the fact that we're not coming to Him as a son or child of God and asking Him, things. God wants to be good to us. And 
I've always hesitated in my life as a Christian to ask God for anything. I remember when I graduated from seminary, I'd had secondhand cars, and they weren't very good, by the way. I remember in the old days, I could buy a Model T Ford. I worked at a commercial appeal in Memphis at a newspaper, and I took in ads at night when somebody would come in and want to sell a car, and I'd say, where's the car? And I'd go out and look at it, and if it looked like a bargain, and a lot of them were, I'd buy the car, drive it a year, then sell it for generally what I paid for it, or maybe a little bit more. And I know something about secondhand cars, friends. And so when I graduated from seminary, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, would you give me a good secondhand car? And you know what the Lord did? He gave me a new car. <laughs> Why didn't I ask him for a new car? You know, we're beggars. We just don't know what to ask for. And we have possessions, wonderful spiritual possessions in Christ. And he'd like for us to come by faith. These were women of faith, and they said, we want possession. That was our fathers. And today, we have spiritual possessions. Let's go ask for them. Tell the Father, we want our inheritance, and we want these spiritual blessings. And he wants to bless us. How wonderful he is. The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. That's what God said. And today, he wants his children to speak right also and speak up. Now we have a sad note here. There's a man we've been following ever since we actually began the book of Genesis. That's Moses. He was the writer. We had something to say about him. Now he's going to pass from this earthly scene. Verse 12, And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee up into this mount of and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou also shall be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of the congregation, to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. Now this was, you remember, Moses smote that rock twice. And God told him just to speak to it. And because he got angry and did this and did not obey God, and by that not protecting the type, because that rock is Christ. It represents Christ. And he only died once for our sins, only smitten once. And therefore, it provided the living water for us today. And the sad note, of course, is that Moses now is to take a look. He'll see into the land, but he'll not enter the land. There was a trick question that I used to ask the classes that I taught years ago in a Bible institute. And the trick question was, did Moses ever enter the promised land? And, of course, the students generally put down, no, he didn't. But every now and then a sharp student would say, yes, he did. And, of course, he did. And that was at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. But here he only got a view of it. And God will not permit him to enter into the land. You see, disobedience today keeps many of us from entering into our spiritual possessions. You see, to not believe God, to doubt God, 
and disbelief will always lead to disobedience. And that's exactly what happened to Moses. And that robs many of us today. Now, there's to be a successor appointed to take Moses' place. And Moses spoke unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, which may lead them out, which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. He must be a Spirit-filled man. And he said, Lay thine hand upon him. Now, laying hands upon him would not transfer any power or anything like that. All you can do today, and I hear so much about the laying on of hands, when you lay hands on someone, the only thing you can communicate to that individual are disease germs. You can communicate them, by the way, but no power at all. All it indicates is the successor or the partner in the enterprise. The church, you remember, in Antioch, put their hands upon Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. What? To communicate power? Oh, no. No power at all. The power comes through the Holy Spirit of God. But that they represent the church. The church is associated with these two men in the missionary enterprise. And that is the meaning of the laying on of hands. This man's to be the successor of Moses. He'll carry on where Moses laid down the work while this man, Joshua, will pick it up. And I want to say just a word about Joshua here. We'll have a great deal to say about him when we get to the book of Joshua. And it's this. I think Joshua was probably the most surprised man of anyone in the camp that he was chosen to succeed Moses. He was, in one sense, the most unlikely one to succeed Moses. And you know why? He's an average man. No one went around and said, oh, this man, Joshua, he has great potential. He has great leadership ability and all that sort of thing that you hear today. Apparently, Joshua didn't have that. He was an ordinary individual. And Joshua, as someone has said, reveals what God can do with an ordinary man. And friends, the book of Joshua has always been a great encouragement to me. In fact, Joshua and Judges, I love those two books because they reveal the fact that God can take ordinary man if they'll be used of God and be yielded to him. God can take them and use them. And that means he can use me because he can use the ordinary. And it means he can use you. You may not be the ordinary. Maybe I'm saying the wrong thing to you. But this is a remarkable thing, by the way. So Joshua now is the one chosen. He's the one appointed to take Moses' place. And in due time, at the death of Moses, we'll see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua takes over.